Let's go to the Lord in prayer this morning. Gracious Father, loving Lord, in times like these, we need a Savior. In times like these, we need an anchor. And I so unite with the songwriter as he said, be very sure, be very sure that your anchor holds and grips the solid rock. Lord, we invite your Holy Spirit to come even now to speak to our hearts, enter in through our ears to the place where you know that we need to be touched. And remove, we ask, the distractions that may cause us to miss something significant that your Holy Spirit wants us to hear. And when this message is done, may we find in our lives a clear place where the work of God preparing us for eternity is going to be continued. And so we invite you now to speak to us, send your holy angels to surround us, your Holy Spirit to empower us, and may Jesus be exalted. In your precious name we pray. Amen. Clear as mud. It's an ironic title, but we live in ironic times. Times that are quite unusual, but in the eyes of God, everything is clear. Things that don't make sense to us are clear to God. And I always like to find interesting stories to begin the message. I call those leading stories, foundational stories. Just a few weeks ago, or maybe, maybe a little less than two weeks ago, there was a headline that caused the world to stand still. As a landslide in northern India that claimed at that moment of the broadcast, they said, thus far, 24 lives had been claimed. And they said, more missing. That was the title of the news splash on the screen. But as the story unfolded, it pointed out that a Himalayan glacier broke off and crippled two dams connected to a power plant in northern India. They said large chunks of ice came barreling down what normally would be water. And they said, and some people believe it, some people don't, but they said the effect of global warming is shrinking the glaciers in the mountains of the Himalayans. And larger chunks of ice than ever before are breaking off, entering into the water supply, and it has no place else to go but downstream. And it came downstream barreling toward these walls, these power plant walls in northern India, and crashed through the walls, crippling more than 13 villages downstream. The article said, it unleashed a torrent of muddy water downstream after breaking through the walls of the dam. And then they go on to say, and more than 165 people were still reported missing. More than 13 villages were cut off and bridges were destroyed. And as a 
pastor, as a minister whose imagination God ignites. When I read that story, I thought, there's something in that story that is true about our society. And I began to look at the mud to begin unfolding the lesson that was encased in that tragic article. Because you see, after a flood, it is amazing how difficult it is to distinguish between what was and what is. Because the landscape has been permanently altered. You think about the great tsunami that happened in the Pacific a few years ago. When the waters came on the land and brought with it debris and trees ripping down hotels, uprooting the sand and a wall of mud that traveled more than 500 miles an hour, inundated the resorts along the coast of many of those Pacific islands. The beautiful courtyards were hardly describable after the mud had covered it. It was hard after the mud had inundated the land to still think in your mind how beautiful the lawns were. It altered the way we distinguish things between what it was and what it is. Cars were piled up. These were basic hotel vans that were transporting people from where they were to the airport. But when they were filled with mud and bodies and debris, it's hard to imagine that a seat now covered in mud was once a comfortable air-conditioned van. It's hard to distinguish between what was and what is. But mud also has an irreversible way of changing the way we see things. You know, you see a resort and you say, that's a place I would love to be. But after the mud, you see, that's the place I'm glad I was not. After the massive loss of more than 200,000 lives, you say to yourself, I am glad I did not choose that as my vacation spot. Mud has a way that no matter how deep the cleaning, mud is a stubborn adversary because it refuses to allow us to forget its effect. We say, I know what your house looked like, but did you see it after the mud? It refuses to allow us to forget its effects. It etches its fingerprints on us for an indiscriminate period of time. As people that went through the tragic experience say, I never forget where I was when the mud came tumbling down on our village. 13 villages, massive loss of life and farmland covered in mud, cattle washed away downstream, vehicles, carts, modes of transportation forever washed away. Mud has a way of refusing to allow us to forget its effects. And then finally, it takes a long time before those affected by the mud will ever recover mentally. Right now, they're still discovering bodies and trying to rebuild their lives there in northern India because it was amazing in the tragedy. And as we watched it on the news, to see, to understand that behind those damn walls were millions and millions and millions of gallons of water to power the plants for all these villages downstream, only to see them now coming down at an angry speed, ripping apart everything in its path, indiscriminate, 
taking no consideration for life and limb and wealthy and poor, everything in the path of this mud was immediately victimized. And when they tried to figure out how it happened, trying to put the stories together, when you merged all the stories together, it was as clear as mud. Because everybody had a different viewpoint on how it happened. Everybody saw it from a different perspective. But to God, he saw it from its beginning, even beyond its tragedy. And when I read that story about the Himalayan glacier and the mud flow that it unleashed, I couldn't help but to see its application to our world today. Consider the following applications on how mud can be seen in our world today. Because we live in a downstream world where inevitable forces wait to unleash their effects, determined to cover us with mud, determined to cover with mud the things that we once valued. Think about the things that we once valued. Family values covered in mud today. Come on, somebody, say amen. Family values. There was a time that you can watch television and in a safe and relatively uh, innocuous environment, you can feel comfortable to leave your child and watch something on television. But not anymore. Not anymore. The mud of society has covered the things that we once valued and changed the way that we do family, changed the way that we do entertainment, even the way that we look at commercials. You got to be careful just for commercials. Downstream world. We live in one of the most ambiguous times in modern history. People are resistant to truth, passionate about deception. The mud has covered their intellect. The behaviors that characterize our world are indescribable. If we can see the world from God's perspective, what would we do? If we can see the filth and the violence and the crime and man's inhumanity to man and racial insensitivity and, the, and, the, and the, the misuse of the poor as they're being pushed to produce wealth and goods by the wealthy. If we can see the sweatshops, if we can see with the eyes of God, girls being snatched away to be forced into prostitution. If we can see the powerful and the wealthy traveling millions of miles to abuse children. If we can see what God sees, what would we say? I think we would say enough. But God somehow is allowing the gospel to permeate these dark recesses of society, hoping that in some community somewhere, someone who is now a victim, someone now who is incarcerated in fear can find the voice of God and be saved from the effects of the mud of the world. When I think about it, one of the most precious descriptions of our time, the Apostle Paul had it right when he said, this know also that in the last days, what kind of times? Perilous times have come. Our civilization can be summed up as the smokescreen generation. We live at a time where people are unclear about many things. And I've even heard Christians just last night as we had family worship. My wife has a literal family worship with her family every Friday night. That's her personal Zoom. And they get together. They reminisce about the week. They talk about family. 
And then they get into God's word and they read the writings of Ellen White and the book Last Day Events. And one of the gentlemen that we invited, which is a longtime friend, he said to us, he says, my father and my father's father and HMS Richards and C.D. Brooks, and he went on naming the names, have all said that Jesus was coming in their day. Is he coming? And I said, brethren, the times that we live in today are not like the times when C.D. Brooks was being raised or when HMS Richards was being raised. We are living in a day and age that, that, that could not even closely parallel the innocuous generation of their days, the Ozzy and Harriet generations. Come on, old people, say amen. You know, when, 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 they, when you watched Ozzy and Harriet, they slept in opposite beds. They didn't even want to communicate the idea that they were sleeping together. But today, I don't even need to say anything after that. Today is enough. There was a time the, that um, on, uh, on uh, Art Link Letter, come on, old people. You know, we watch Art Link Letter. You young folk, wait on, I'll come to you in a moment. We watch Art Link Letter, and the whole family can get together and watch Art Link Letter. Yes, right. Or we can say, uh, what was his name? He'd, he'd always stand like this. Uh, uh, anyway, the point of the matter is when, when, when Elvis appeared on one of those shows, the, the Sullivan, Ed Sullivan show, they made all the intentions not to focus the camera below his waist as he was gyrating his brains out. But today, we live in a mud world. Come on, say amen, somebody. Today, they do all that they can to focus where they should not. We live in a generation today where, where people, it, it has become commonplace to not get married. They live together. And young folk today don't even think about getting married. I remember one young person said to me, now how do you know that that woman will be right for me if I don't try it out before I get married? How do you know we're going to be happy? How, do you, how are we going to know what to do? I said, let me tell you something. God made you opposite. Don't worry about it. When God is in it, you'll know what to do. Come on, somebody. But nowadays, we live in a different generation. Today, we live in a generation where young people are confused about their gender. No wonder they don't know what to do. People are increasingly dissatisfied with the gender of their birth. And now parents on the birth certificate can, can write these words, gender neutral. In other words, let the child decide what gender he or she is. That's our generation. Our civilization can be summed up as the smokescreen generation. And then you add to that social media that has made hostages of the brains of its consumers. That's why we want to use social media to turn darkness into light. That's why we have to use a platform that people are accessing to say, God can find you wherever you are. Because it's not so much the tool, but it's how it is being used. But that's our generation. We find today false doctrines have produced disoriented Christians. I was invited again yesterday to be on, on Thursday night, I was invited yesterday a couple of days ago to be on Clubhouse again where Pastor Ivor Meyer and I and a number of other young men got together to talk about Daniel 9, the 70-week prophecy. And there we had a man determined to argue 
He wasn't there to learn. He was determined to argue. But praise God, there were young folk on there that were saying, thank you for sharing. We needed to understand these truths. But he was so determined to argue, and with the freedom of social media nowadays, he went ahead and left our room and started his own room, quote, why Seventh-day Adventists are wrong about Daniel 9. That's the kind of world we're living in today. False doctrines have produced disoriented Christians. People don't know what to believe anymore. The effect of mud. What happened and what has become. And many have become so accustomed to listening to their leaders that the words of the immortal God are being traded for the imaginations of mortal man. That's the kind of world we live in nowadays. Is it clear to you? It is clear as mud. Politicians and their intentions are hidden behind the wall of shadowy legislation. Murky doctrines are concealed under the guise of emotional substitutes. Somebody said it doesn't really matter what you believe as long as you experience God. How can you experience God and push aside the truths of God's word? It's clear as mud. And it is more difficult to discern between the genuine and the counterfeit today. But I want to tell you, God sees it exactly as it is. That's why, as we go to Ezekiel chapter 22 and verse 26, God begins to, he begins to uh, bring out the diagnosis of modern man by comparing them to the infection that Israel went through during its time. Notice what he says. He describes the mud. Ezekiel 22 and verse 26, he says, her priests have violated my law and profaned my holy things. They have not distinguished, there's that word again, between the holy and the what else? Unholy. Nor have they made known the difference, mud, between the unclean and the clean. As it was, it's becoming the same way again. And they have hidden their eyes from my Sabbaths so that I am profaned among them. That's what's happening today. So it's not anything that's brand new. God is saying what was is duplicating itself all over again. Brethren, that's why as Seventh-day Adventist Christians, we need to be clear about what we believe. Because when you're thrown into situations like on Clubhouse or on Facebook, when people are arguing with you about your beliefs, or on any social media platform that you communicate back and forth, you've got to know how to use your sword. You've got to know how to rightly divide the word of truth. You've got to know that when this is done, you will not be ashamed because God has taught you how to use your sword. And you add to all that confusion, you also discover that confusion breeds deception, deception breeds manipulation, and manipulation results in control. And that's exactly, even the issue of Sunday is steeped in mud. I'll read the quotation for you from the book Councils for the Church, page 335 in paragraph 2. I don't have it on the screen today, but listen carefully. The Sunday movement is now making its way in darkness, mud. The leaders are concealing the true issues hidden under mud. And many who unite in the movement do not themselves see whither the undercurrent is tending. Its professions are mild and apparently Christian. But when it shall speak, it will reveal the spirit of the dragon. 
The dragon is alive and well today. But I want to say Jesus is alive and well today. The dragon is working hard, but he can never work harder than Jesus. The dragon has a foot on us, but Jesus has a step on him. He's working hard, but the Lord will have the final say. When God says enough, even this nation is going through a religio-political metamorphosis. Revelation chapter 13, verse 11 talks about the mud that we do not see. And the Bible says in Revelation 13, verse 11, Then I saw another beast coming up out of the earth, and he had two horns like a lamb and spoke like a dragon. My brethren, I know that we are hearing the dragon speak in our nation. We are listening to the dragon roar in our nation. We have seen over the last four to six to eight to ten years in our nation politically, it's getting darker and darker and darker and darker. That's why just the other day, uh, as a matter of fact, among some of the family members, they were arguing about this platform and that platform. I said, brethren, that's the reason why. That is the reason why, as Christians, we ought not get excited about any political leader, but get excited about Jesus. Because nobody can give the answer. In all this dark that's surrounding us, Jesus is still the light of the world. And I've learned that true Christianity shines brightest when it is darkest. I've also learned that the untried faith is an unreliable faith. One of the reasons why we got to go through certain things, if your faith is not tried, it's unreliable. I cite the reality. I was reading an article one day about how they develop airplane wings. I love av aviation. I'm an amateur pilot. I'm so amateur, my airplane is on my iPad. I'm really amateur. I've never flown a real plane. But I always say to my wife, if the pilot ever gets disoriented, I know what to do. <laughs> I should tell the flight attendant next time I'm on the next flight. If, the fly if it gets disoriented, so I walk on planes that I'm familiar with, and I said, this is an A320, isn't it? Or the A319. I, I read these books. Many years ago, I just, I did something that well, it had no, no reason for it, but I did it anyway. I had like a 400-page manual of how to fly a Boeing 777. Highly technical language, terminologies that we don't use on a daily basis, but I did it just to say, I know how to fly a 777. Now, don't be on the plane if it's my first flight, because I got to try it out <laughs> before I could. But the point of the matter is, the knowledge is out there. It's out there. I, I like how to do that. But I, what I'm saying is, unless you have been tested and tested and tested and tested, unless God can try your faith and try it again and try it again, he would not know that when the mud is rolling down, when it's all passed, you'll still be standing in the righteousness of Jesus. Unless you walk, unless you walk with Jesus, you'll never know what it's like to walk without him. And unless your walk with Jesus caused you something, it's not worth anything. Unless we spend the night in the lion's den, we cannot appreciate the morning. Until the fire is hotter than it's ever been, we'll never appreciate the fact that only Jesus can save us in the fire. And these are the days where we need, even as Adventists, we need something more than a label, Tracy. We can't just say, I'm a Seventh-day Adventist Christian. It has to be more than a label. It has to be a relationship with the living God. This week, I downloaded another booklet. I like to read things. 
I downloaded another book that I'm going to read. And those of you that are on my Zoom, you know what I'm talking about. It's called Christian Atheists. Christian Atheists. And I thought, what an, an amazing title. It fits into the context of Clear as Mud. What on earth is a Christian Atheist? So I began to look at the, um, at the thesis. And he pointed out there are those that believe that God exists, but they live as though he doesn't. That's a Christian atheist. There are those that know that God can supply all their needs, but they try to supply their own needs. That's a Christian atheist. There are those that say, I love the Lord, but I'm not going to keep his commandments. That's a Christian atheist. The requirements of God are not negotiable. And when you read that booklet, it's a great exercise. It's very thin. It's about, oh, about the size of this Bible marking booklet. Very quick, a little thicker. But it has in it little tests and exams so that you can, you can assess yourself to find out whether or not you're a Christian atheist. And I thought to myself, man, I'd like to find out how many atheists I have in my church. <laughs> Maybe we ought to do that instead of the Bible marking plan. So the ones that are not atheists can learn how to use their Bibles. But I thought to myself, it's interesting. God wants our faith to be tried now so that when the water comes rolling down the mountain, God knows that we'll be able to stand. Amen? When the difficult times come, God can say, Roger, this is your moment. When the hard days, when faith needs to be seen clearly, God can say, Dan Peak, show them that I'm God in good times and bad times. But unless your faith is tried, you'll never know how strong your faith is. But as we dive into the story, and by the way, this is just foundation. The sermon hasn't started yet. We'll discover that these are the days that we need more than a label. We need to have more than a song. And we need to have faith with Christ that is personal. What word did I just say? Personal. personal. Don't rely on my faith, and I can't rely on your faith. Yesterday, my wife had the privilege of doing another speech on Toastmasters. Uh, she's not very, uh, not very prone to be a public speaker. So she's working on developing her skills as a public speaker. And uh, following all the preparation, her brother has a, a slogan. He goes, P, 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 P. Proper prior preparation prevents poor performance. And April was on it yesterday also. And so uh, Angie invited April to be a part of this Toastmasters. And, but she was terrified. She was like a frog in a blender and somebody was coming toward to press the button. <laughs> you know, she felt like an oven and like a, like a fish in an oven that was about to be roasted for somebody's meal. But she did all her prior preparation and it prevented poor performance. But her brother took a quick picture of her face. She was so, he said, why are you so worried? He said, you know you do your homework. You know you do a good job. You know your husband's going to be with you. Y'all going to work together. And the evaluator after it was all done, said, Angela, you were prepared. You were ready. You even looked the part. You, you ignited passion in my life. I can't wait to hear about your next travel. And you challenged us today not to just travel. In her, in, her, in her closing statement about traveling around the world, we went to Africa. She says, I no longer travel for the joy of seeing another country. I now travel for the joy of changing lives. And she said, you were on tap yesterday. And she said, she said, John, did I do well? I said, honey, you did excellent. She said, oh, you're just saying that to me. I said, no, honey, you did good. And praise God, 
faith. She's being tried now so that when the time comes to go to New Guinea <laughs> to preach to those 5,000 folk that got canceled last year, she'll be ready. Amen, somebody? Amen. You got to get that faith tried. But something I've learned is the key to victory. The key to what? This is an amazing statement. The key to victory begins in the simplicity of the gospel. Because sometimes God will ask you, Alice, to do something that doesn't seem to make sense. But it's clear as mud to God. God is not complicated, and he sees beyond human ability. I said to my wife, and this is what I mean by that, I said, honey, if you were just standing there by yourself, then I'd be terrified too. But I remember the statement, Jesus says, I can do all things through Christ, who what? Who strengthens me. Don't ever think that when the moment of trial comes that you're standing by yourself. I can do all things together through Christ, who does what? Strengthens me. You don't see how it's going to happen. It may be as clear as mud to you, but God can see the end from the beginning. That's why I appreciate the words of Isaiah the prophet in Isaiah chapter 55, verse 8 and 9. Notice what he says. As we read these words, if we can be God, if we can figure it out, there will be no need for God. But look what Isaiah says. Verse 8 and 9, Isaiah 55. He says, for my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways, what? My ways, says the Lord. For as the heavens are together higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts, what? Higher than your thoughts. So while, you are, while you're wondering whether or not you're going to make it, God is saying, I'm so far ahead of you. You're driving down the road. God sees around the corner. You haven't gotten to the town yet. God is beyond the next city. God is always ahead of us. Amen, somebody. So don't fear what may be mud to you is clear to God. His ways are not our ways. And I've discovered something else. The only remedy for a world that's encased in mud is to embrace the cleansing, revealing promises of God. But before I turn now to 2 Kings chapter 5, that's prompting you where to turn, before we go, we, before we go to 2 Kings chapter 5, before we turn in our Bibles to 2 Kings chapter 5, I want to lead in with this statement. I am confident, Will, that God is not going to save us from the mud. God is going to save us through the mud. Hold on to that. As we dive into the life of a man that you may have known, but you're going to meet him on his muddy day. When you look at Naaman's life, I'm going to read verse 1 before I break down the kind of man we are about to examine. 2 Kings chapter 5 and verse 1. And the Bible says, Now Naaman, captain of the hosts of the king of Syria, was a great man. What kind of man was he? A great man with his master. 
and honorable because by him the Lord had given deliverance unto Syria. He was also a mighty man of valor, but he was a leper. When you look at Naaman's life and you study Naaman's victories and his, his resume of one battle that won was won here and another battle won there, when you look at all the, all the trophies in Naaman's office, you'll discover that Naaman's resume would make the common man envious. Naaman was the kind of man whose accomplishments overshadowed the accomplishments of his enemies. He had a standing that many of his soldiers wished they had. He was that kind of man. He was that kind of commander. Naaman had something that someone would covet. He had good credentials. He had victory after victory. But at the end of his resume, the Bible says, but he was a leper. Let me make it even clearer. Your office may be at the end of a long haul, but you're still a leper. Your list of degrees may be longer than your name, but if your resume ends with, but he was a leper, you're still a leper. A leper that wears expensive suits is still a leper. A leper that makes a six-figure income is still a leper. A leper that drives a brand new vehicle is still a leper. And so let us not get caught off guard by the things that people possess or the things that possess individuals. When the Bible looks at a person, it goes beyond what you see to what God sees. And the reality of it is, without God, every one of us is a leper. The end of Naaman's resume is included for those that believe that their accomplishments change the way that God sees them. But he was a leper. That's why today I was listening. Uh, I like to listen to things, too, during the week. I, I like my brain to be challenged. Sometimes I get into a rut. Anybody ever get into a rut? You know, when you get into a rut, just pick up something and read. Good, that is. I like to listen to things that will challenge me. And periodically I would read about uh, people that had great victories in their lives. And I thought about uh, this very famous painter by the name of Rembrandt. Uh, Rembrandt was an artist in his time whose skills were hard to duplicate. And people wondered what kind of skill he had that when he painted a picture, the colors in his picture tended, tended to glow. They said, what do you put in the reds of your artwork that makes it glow? So other artists tried to figure out what his secret ingredient was. What was it that Rembrandt put in his paintings that made the colors glow, the color red particularly? Well, when he was found dead in front of an easel, where he was painting a new composition that he had not completed, they found his secret. They discovered that whenever Rembrandt painted, he would put an incision at the end of his finger and intermingle his blood with the red paint. 
So it was not a paint that was sold in the market. He literally invested himself in his artwork. The secret was Rembrandt painted red by intermingling drops of his own blood in the color red. Because there was a composition in the human blood at that time, we still all have it, that when the light hit it, it glowed. You see, the point of the matter is God wants us to invest ourselves in our walk and in our relationship with him. Only then will the Christian's life go from a humdrum life to a life that glows for the glory of God. Amen. Think about that. The glow in Rembrandt's blood was the glow in the blood of Jesus. He was in more ways than one, the light of the world. The light by his life and the light by his blood. When I think about that word, but he was a leper, I praise God for this next quote unquote, but go to Romans chapter five and verse eight. I praise God for there's some better quote unquote, buts in the Bible. Romans five and verse eight. I'm so glad that Jesus made provision for our salvation before he changed our status. I love this passage. But God demonstrates his own love towards us in that while we were still sinners. What did Christ do, friends? Christ died for us. Aren't you glad? Let me say that again. Aren't you glad that before our status changed in the eyes of God, he made provision to change our status? That's why I say to people today, you're not just forgiven. You're different in Christ. I was doing a program with uh, Yvonne and Danny and Kenny and Chris. And while one of the music artists were playing a song between our program, I think Ian was on the set running camera. And there was a question that Yvonne raised about sinners. And I said, no, no, I'm not, I'm not a sinner. She said, huh? I said, I'm a saint under construction. Come on, somebody help me out. Cause somewhere along the way, if you read the text, if you read the text, it, it suggests that God changed our standing in that while we were, come on, somebody help me out. While we were, how can you come to Christ and still be a were? Walk around, talk about, well, I'm a sinner saved by grace. No, the grace of God changes your standing in that while we were. He talks about that in second Corinthians. He says, who once were not a people, but now are a people. God does not just forgive us. He changes our standing. So I said to Yvonne, I said, somewhere along the way, we've got to accept the transforming grace of Christ to change us from who we were to who we are. Now, I'm not saying I'm perfect, but I am a saint under construction. Come on, saints, can we say amen? Somewhere along the way, if you meet another sinner, they need to meet a saint. Right? Right, Ricky? Why would I want another sinner to be just like me if I'm a sinner just like him? He needs to see a saint under construction. He needs, to, he needs to see somebody that knows how to love in spite of who they are. Somebody who cares in spite of what I've done. Somebody who's willing to forgive in spite of how grievous the action was. We need to be saints under construction. So if somebody says to you, are you a sinner? Say no. 
I accepted Jesus. Romans 5 8 says, I was a sinner, but I'm now a child of God. Tomorrow morning at three o'clock, somebody's gonna wake up saying, Hallelujah, because it's gonna hit you. We are no longer sinners on our way to a Christless graves. We are saints under construction, getting ready for the city of God. While we were, Bob, Bob is a saint under construction. Amen, Alice? Come on, help me out. And Alice is a saint under construction. Bob, you better give it back. Amen. We're all saints under construction. Every now and then, a little bit of that remnant shows up, but praise the Lord. He says, it has not yet been revealed what you shall be. So hold on to Joe, Nancy. He's getting better. It has not yet been revealed. Come on, Angela, hold on to Ian. He's getting stronger. It has not yet been revealed what we shall be, but we do know that when he is revealed, we shall be what? Like him. We are saints under construction. Now, why do I spend so much time on that? Because that's who we're talking about. We're talking about a man whose life was so messed up that when we, co when we communicate a message and talk about sin, never end a sermon, preachers. Never end a sermon making people, people feel worse than they did when you started. Jason, Donald, Joe, all you preachers. Don't let people go home feeling worse than they did when they came to church. Why would I want to come to church? Shake them up, but stand them up. Cut the sin out, but don't forget to stitch them up and send them home whole. That's what God does. We got to be encouraged. The world is changing around us. And when you're tempted to throw in the towel, you got to remember people like Naaman, when the trials seem abundant, the answers are still there. Naaman's story, just like ours, often looks hopeless at the beginning. But I want to tell you, we are not judged by how our lives began. Because when God gets a hold of us, he does in us what no one on this planet can ever do. I know that. I was abandoned, left at a home of a babysitter. Look at me now. Honey, say amen. Oh, she said, praise God. Only God can take an abandoned child and make him a son of God. Only God can take a broken down life and, and say to the angels and the Holy Spirit, get some good scaffolding because this is going to be a tough one. <laughs> then he covers us with the glory of his righteousness while he's working from the inside out. And when he pulls off that curtain one day and says to my father, you like? That's what I'm looking forward to. Anybody else? Our beginning is not a forecast of our destiny. How we are born is not as important as that we were born. And God does not show up later on in our lives. Bonnie, he was there from the very beginning. When my mom, when my mother decided to leave me at a babysitter, God was there when I came out. She thought I was a, an abscess in her stomach. No, I was a child that she did not even know was even planted there. They didn't have exploratory search. They didn't have all that ultra stuff back in the 1950s. Now you know how old I might be. So they went and looked to see what was that pain that she kept having in her stomach. And it was me. 
I was a pain before I was born. So she decided to leave this pain in, in New York City and go back to the Virgin Islands. And God found this baby encased in mud and said, he's my child. Found this baby encased in mud, in the mud of a stranger's house, in the mud of an unfamiliar surrounding, in the mud of somebody else's DNA. And he said, I'm going to work on this piece of mud and I'm going to shape him to reveal my glory. You see, God does not always reveal himself in obvious ways. Sometimes he shows up in the most unexpected ways. So in Naaman's muddy life, how did God show up? Look at verse 2. Look at verse 2. 2 Kings chapter 5 and verse 2. And the Bible says, And the Syrians had gone out on raids and had brought back captive a young girl from the land of Israel. The Bible says she waited on Naaman's wife. When you read this story, it's in Prophets and Kings. My wife and I read it last night for worship before she had her family worship. This is an amazing application of the, of the powerful influence of a, of a parent, of a mother, of a father. Because the Lord allowed... Now, I want, you see, I want you to see how God works. The Lord knew that there would be a raid by the Syrians... The Lord knew that there would be casualties of that raid, children taken against their will. The Lord knew that this young girl was going to be confiscated from her family. But let me show you how God is merciful. God saw a developing condition in Naaman's life that can only be remedied if this young kidnapped girl ended up in his house. Now, that's, that's deep. Why would God allow her to get kidnapped? To save Naaman's life. That's deep. Because people might say, they took my child. And God would say, don't worry about it. I got her covered. But there's somebody else that needs your child to find me. Sometimes we don't understand why difficult stuff happens. And we say, was God in that? In this story, God was in it. God allowed this girl to be taken against her will, put in the home of her captors to save the life of a man who thought he was great. So don't try to figure out the way God works. My ways are not your ways. My thoughts are not your thoughts. We've been through some stuff in our own life, in our own marriage. So how did, why would God allow that? When you look at the result of what happened as a, as a, as a product of what happened, you say, Lord, I probably wouldn't have chosen that method, but I'm glad I'm a whole lot better now. Amen, somebody. God does some things that you say, I probably wouldn't have done it that way, but Lord, I'm glad I'm a whole lot better now than I used to be. So when you don't understand it, when it's as clear as mud, it's clear for God. He sees it. God confronted the powerful through the petite. She was a captured slave in Naaman's eye, but she was royalty in God's eyes. Why am I saying that? Because some of you don't know your value. Some of you think of yourselves as a captured slave by Satan. But I want to tell you, you may not feel like you are royal, but let's go to 2 Peter, 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 9. God sees us, not just as we are in our present, but as he is developing us to be. Don't get confused. You may not feel like it, 
But never determine who you are by your feelings. Determine it by what God says. Here's what he says in 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 9. Another but. Another but. When you look in the Bible, don't look at the bad buts. Look at the good buts. Another one. 1 Peter 2 verse 9. But you are a what? Chosen generation. A royal priesthood. A holy nation. His own special people. Why? Why has God made us that way? That you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Have you ever had a breakfast where God's Holy Spirit fell down on your breakfast? We've had those experiences. Sunday mornings when we're sitting down eating breakfast, reading our Bibles or reading something from Ellen White's writings or reading Oswald Chambers or, or reading something religious or when we have more time and we could read chapter after chapter after chapter after chapter and then we close our Bibles and while we're eating our breakfast, we have to pause to wipe our tears. You got to have those moments. Those are valuable moments. My wife reaches out and she says to me, she said, now that's another moment we just had. That's another moment. So when the difficult days come, you can draw on that moment. You can say God was there. As we're walking out the door today, and I was looking back on moments in lives of people whose names sometimes doesn't mean a whole lot to us. And I was looking earlier this week at the struggle of the African-American in the land of America. And I was listening to the speech of Dr. Martin Luther King when he stood up. And I came to find out that the phrase, I have a dream, was not something that came from him, but it came from a young African-American young lady who in her own church was preaching a sermon. And he listened to her that day when she said, I have a dream. And when Dr. Martin Luther King was standing, uh, speaking at a rally to disenfranchise black men who were fighting for identity, they were being treated like, like, like dirt and they had signs on their chest, I am a man. And he couldn't find his stride. Mahalia Jackson in the background said, Martin, tell him about your dream. And he kicked into gear and he said, I have a dream. You see, God sometimes take the, the invisible and the innocuous. We don't know about that lady, but we know about his dream. We don't know about that young girl's name, but we know about Naaman's life. So God may sometimes choose to keep you obscure, but your obscurity is noticed by God. Now, why am I saying that? Because God doesn't put everybody on stage. But I want to tell you, those are those people whose stories are told long after they pass. Like when Jim Pitts was laid to rest, we came to find out things about Jim Pitts that nobody knew. Obscure, but powerful. Transforming lives. Making sure that missionaries around the world could continue preaching. Jim said, no, pastor, I want my membership to be this place so that I can support that ministry and this ministry. And as I sat down with him, I thought, wow, this man is deeper than I ever thought. The obscure. Sometimes you may not ever be under the lights of a camera. But in the eyes of God, you are greater than those who are in front of the camera. Because God does not work with the visible all the times. Sometimes he works through the petite captives in a home where they would never choose to be, 
but God put them there for such a time as this. So don't, so don't, so don't desire something when God can use you a better way. Let God desire and orchestrate where he wants you to be and when he wants you to be there. Amen. Look at verse three. Had it not been for Jesus, the predicament would have been without resolution. God used a young girl. Look at chapter five and verse three of second Kings. This is the young girl now talking to her mistress. And she said to her mistress, that is to Naaman's wife. If only my master were with the prophet who is in Samaria, for he would heal him of his leprosy. <laughs> now watch this. He's the one that orchestrated my kidnapping. Let him go ahead and die of his leprosy. That's what some of us would have said. Good for you. Am I being real? Uh-huh, you wouldn't kidnap me good for you. Look, go ahead and rot. But a converted person says, I see you through God's eyes. So my, my situation may seem to be apparently hopeless, but now I realize why God brought me here. Why Joseph was thrown in a pit and then sold as a slave to the Midianites and then falsely accused and then put in prison because God was going to take him from pits to palaces. So don't, don't get confused about where you are right now. Because God knows that you are exactly where he knew that you were going to be. God knows that he's developing your life and your walk. So don't begin to covet what God does not want you to have. You'll find in scripture that the stories of great failure came because men coveted what God never intended for them to have. God made Uzziah a king. He wanted to be a priest and he ended up a leper. Because God did not want him to be there so here's this young girl now, and when I read this chapter, I thought to myself, the reason why this young girl was so effective as a captor, as a captured little girl, is because servant of the Lord points out that she was raised by godly parents, like the three Hebrews. She was trained from young. When she was a little girl, she was introduced to Christ in her home. She was involved in the Bible studies, in the prayer life of the home. God was training her in the way that she would go. She knew God as a young child. So the training she got when she was young kicked in when she was no longer under the influence of her parents. And parents, I say that to say this. You may not know what the future is for your young child or what God has in store for your children, but now is your time. This is your hour. Get them ready because God is going to one day call on you to give an account, where are the jewels that I lent to you? When the parent takes the training of the child seriously, the day may come, like this young girl, that they may be in a situation where they don't want to be, but God saw that they would be there for the salvation of somebody else. I tell you, God allowed me to be kidnapped. A kidnapping is sleeping, by the way. A kidnapping is when a child is taking a nap. God allowed me to be abandoned so that it can work out for the salvation of my mother. So she abandoned me, but about almost 30 years later, I baptized her. Who can do that but God? It took a while to get there. 
It took a while to get there, but God got her there. Why is this so significant? And those of you that are Adventists, I'm going to give you something that you don't see coming. God used a young girl as his messenger. He chose a young girl to introduce to Naaman the ministry of healing. <laughs> While Adventists are chucking the writings of Ellen White, God said, oh, don't get rid of the young girl with a third grade education. More books have been translated in more languages by her than any other female author ever, ever alive. The Library of Congress lists The Desire of Ages as one of the best books ever written on the life of Christ. And ministers of countless denominations have found success in their congregations by following her books, Steps to Christ, Prophets and Kings. I remember many years ago in, in a Dr. Cho, a large evangelical leader, had a church of 50,000 members in one of the Asian countries. I forget exactly right now which country it was. I think it was in Japan. In Korea. Thank you, honey. My wife remembers the details. And two Adventist ministers went to visit with him. How did you build up your congregation to 50,000 followers? <laughs> he said, I don't tell everybody the secret, but I could tell you. And he invited them to his office. They told us that they told us this experience at one of our large pastor's gatherings. He said, Dr. Cho invited us into his office, into his palatial office, into his massive edifice. He had an edifice. This is a church. He had an edifice. Long before Joel Olstein and T.D. Jakes, there was Dr. Cho. And he pulled out two books, Evangelism and Gospel Workers. And he said, if you guys would follow this book, your church would grow like mine is. A young girl in the right place at the right time. And that's why 2 Chronicles 20, 20 says it this way. Listen to this. Hear me, O Judah, and you inhabitants of Jerusalem. Believe in the Lord your God and you shall be what? Established. But he goes on. Believe his prophets and you shall do what? And you shall prosper. And right now, in so many circles, even included in some Adventist circles, Ellen White is being torn apart left and right as though she's irrelevant, as though she's some kind of misguided person who lost her mind and wrote about more than 100 books. And even Time Magazine did an article. I have the article at home, actually. I have the magazine at home. And in the center of the magazine, Time Magazine, a Catholic publication, the article starts with a woman 100 years ahead of her time. And they began to cite her findings against modern medical findings. And as a matter of fact, I just so happen to have it today. Medical Science and the Spirit of Prophecy. This book is a compilation of medical findings by modern doctors and scientists who says she had this knowledge long before it was even available. And one of my eye doctors in California that had produced many glasses for us, who gave me many eyeglasses, I noticed in his library, in his office, he had her books. And I said, hey, doc, uh, uh, I noticed you have some books in yourself. He said, yes. He said, I get a whole lot of knowledge, medical understanding from those books. That woman was really ahead of her time. God will choose the obscure to connect, to connect people to the God that so many people don't know. So God used her in an unlikely way. But don't discount the fact, don't get, discount the fact 
as one person said, but she doesn't understand Greek and Hebrew. I said to a pastor once who told me that, he said, but how can you believe what she writes? She doesn't understand Greek and Hebrew. I said, she doesn't need to. God does. <laughs> right? Do the apostles understand Greek on the day of Pentecost? No, but they spoke in Greek. Do they understand all the other languages represented there? But they spoke in those languages just like that. God can do more for a person in one year under his tutelage than in 15 years in any university on this planet. So Naaman gets excited. And then in verse 4, 2 Kings chapter 5, verse 4, notice what it says. And Naaman went in and told his master, saying, Thus and thus said the girl who is from the land of Israel. She told me how, how I can find remedies. And then in verse 5, look what it says. So the king of Syria said, Go now, and I will send a letter to the king of Israel. So he departed and took him with him 10 talents of silver, 6,000 shekels of gold, and 10 changes of clothing. Now, how many people go to the dentist's office with all that? <laughs> Where are you going? To the hospital. You need all that money? Must have been expensive nowadays. 10 changes of clothing. In other words, he, he, is, so, he is so used to showing up ready. When I go for my healing, I'm going to look like I need to be healed. So he goes sharp because he wants to go ahead and buy his healing. Not understanding that God doesn't need his money. And when you hear the story and the letter goes to the king of Israel, he tears his clothes and he says, do you think I'm the one that can kill and make alive? Why would you bring this challenge to me? But what he didn't understand, God had an answer. God had an answer for this king's dilemma. Look at verse 8 of 2 Kings chapter 5. So I love what Naaman said. I mean, I love what Elisha said. Elisha said to the king, don't worry about it. God's got this. God's got this. Look at verse 8. So it was when Elisha, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his clothes that he sent to the king saying, why have you torn your clothes? Please let him come to me, and he shall know that there is a prophet where? In Israel. He says, don't worry about it. Send him to me. Send Naaman to me. So verse 9 and 10, let's dive at it. The Naaman went with his horses and chariot, and he stood at the door of Elijah's house, and Elijah sent a messenger to him, <laughs> saying, Go and wash in the Jordan seven times and your flesh shall be restored to you and you shall be clean. You got to put this together. You got to get this. The president just drove up to your house with his motorcade, his secret service, and you send a message on a sticky note. Here, uh, Pastor John said, read this. He's on the computer right now. Follow the instructions. He looks around at his detail, said, are you kidding me? Are you serious? I mean, he came all this way. I got silver and gold for him. And he gives you a sticky note to tell me, go wash. How insulting is that? The Bible says in verse 11 and 12, 
But Naaman became furious and went away and said, Indeed, I said to myself, he will surely come out to me and stand and call on the name of the Lord, his God, and wave his hand over the place like those TV evangelists slapping folk on the forehead and heal the leprosy. Are not the Abnar and the far part, the rivers of Damascus, better than all the waters of Israel? Could I not wish, could I not wash in them and be clean? So he turned and went away in what? Rage. When you read the story, he went away in anger. When you read the story, you discover Naaman's problem was not just leprosy. He had an anger problem. He had a pride issue. He was filled with self-importance. He had personal preference over divine prerogative. Naaman had a whole lot of issues. So people sometimes want God to resolve their financial crisis when God says, your problem is you have a spending addiction. You don't need more money. You need to cut those credit cards up. Amen, somebody. Some people want a new car. God says, no, you don't need a new car. You need to get to church on what you have because you ain't been to church in years. You need a new car to get to church. What happened to that one? You don't, that car doesn't know where your church is. God always gets to the heart of the matter. I don't feel well. If God made some of us as sick as we claim to be on Sabbath morning, what would happen to us? I felt sick. I tell him, tell that to Jill on Monday. I'm sick, Jill. I ain't coming in. Don't tell it to God on Sabbath. Amen, somebody. Right, Tracy? You know, Jill, I'm taking the week off, but you need to pay me anyway because I just don't feel like working today. Tell that to God on Sabbath morning. We wouldn't do that. Why does God get the bottom of the barrel? That shows us that if we have to find excuses not to come and worship God on Sabbath morning, even in a COVID-19 fellowship, what kind of Christianity do we have? Atheists, we are Christian atheists. We believe in God, but we live like he doesn't exist. So all these issues, look at verse 13. Let's dive into it. So his servants now, the one that Naaman commanded is now commanding Naaman. And his servants came near and spoke to him and said, My father, if the prophet had told you to do something great, would you not have done it? How much more then when he says to you, wash and be clean? He said to Naaman, just go wash up. Just do it. Just do it. And Naaman thought, I'm the commander. I am not going in no muddy Jordan River. Now, can I take you about 1,500 years later? If Naaman only knew that that was the river that Jesus was going to get baptized in, he would have said, my privilege. <laughs> only Jesus and I found healing in those waters. You see, sometimes God gives you a divine glimpse, but he waits. If you follow the simple things that God does now, Later on, you'll be able to say, you know what? There's only two people I remember that got baptized in the Jordan, you and me. Naaman is the only other person in the Bible talked about as having to go down in the Jordan, coming up different than when he went down. Who's the other one? Jesus. How many of you would like to share that with your resume? Me and Jesus are the only ones cited in Scripture as having been baptized in the Jordan. That's how God is. So the circumstances were allowed by God not to wound his pride, but to change his life. God had to, God had to humble him before he changed him. Naaman had to be willing to bow low before he can stand up.
Look at verse 14. So he went down and dipped how many times? Seven. Seven. Now I got to stop right here. I got to stop right here because this is an, this is an amazing parlay. God's blessings. And I had to, I, I saw this in a way I had never seen it before. God's blessings will elude you until you agree with God that the Sabbath blessing cannot be found in the first dip. The second dip, the third dip day, the fourth dip day, the fifth or the sixth dip day. You got to dip on the seventh day to find the blessing. And no matter what day you pick other than that, there ain't no blessing in that. Ask Naaman. He'll tell you, yeah, it was the seventh. <laughs> you can call Sunday what you want. But God didn't say, Naaman, pick a dip. He said, go down seven times. Amen, somebody? All those false preachers. Well, this day is better. You'll be, you'll be dipping for a long time and you'll still come up dirty. You can only find the blessing of God when you do it God's way. When God says the seventh day, he didn't say pick a day. He said the seventh day. He didn't say name and pick a dip. He said go down seven times. Here's the point. There are too many proud preachers and too many proud Christians they want to do it their way, but you'll be walking around like a leper for a long time until you do it God's way, Christian atheism. Let's go back to the verse. You never know there's so much in just two words, seven times. So he went down and dipped seven times in the Jordan according, this is it, according to the saying of the man of God. How do we have to live, brethren? According to the sayings of the man of God. And his flesh was what? Restored like the flesh of a little child, and what? He was clean. Amen? Amen? And what was his testimony? As I close, what was his testimony? Here's his testimony. Here's the testimony of a man who was in charge and realized he really wasn't in charge of anything. Who's a, he was a man who called shots and realized he called shots that never got him anywhere but to leprosyville. He was a man that never knew true victory until he realized that victory comes with surrender, not with fighting. And what did his testimony say to us today? That's last verse. 2 Kings 5.15, the last verse. The testimony of a proud man. And he returned to the man of God. He and all his aides. Can you see him? He's soaking wet like a guy that just came out of the baptismal pool. And he came and stood before him and he said, indeed, what are the three words? Now I know that there is what? No God in all the earth except in Israel. Now, therefore, please take a gift from your servant. And I got to tell you the rest of the story. Naaman didn't take a penny. Sorry, Elisha did not accept a dime. Salvation is a free gift. Somebody say amen. Don't ever sell God's blessings when God has saved you for free. He paid the price. So I have to ask the question, my brethren. And the point is clear. We will never know true victory until we are willing to serve God in the muddy waters. God does not save us, Ramona, from the muddy waters. God saves us in the muddy waters. You got mud in your life? 
God is giving you a glimpse of what your life can become without him. But only a life cleansed through the muddy waters of experience will bring us face to face with the three words, now I know. If you don't know yet about the power of God, I could suggest to you as I close that God is saying you are trying to avoid the muddy waters before you, but I'm saying get in the muddy waters and I'll transform your life. Is your marriage stuck in mud? Don't answer that question. God is not asking you to obey him because your marriage is ideal, but God is saying trust him in the muddy waters of matrimony and God can clean it up. Somebody ought to say amen. God is saying it may not be the best yet, but I'm not done yet. Don't get rid of that model because I ain't done with her. Don't get rid of that model because I'm not done with him. Let me clean up the mud in his or her life and you'll see him in a way that you've never seen him before or you've never seen her before. Are your finances caught in mud? Huh? God is forcing you to trust him with your tithes and offerings now. Honor him through the mud and your money matters. And God will take that money and multiply it for the glory of his kingdom. Are your children acting like mud? <laughs> God is not telling you to beat the devil out of them. God is telling you to love them through the more muddy waters of their rebellion. So years later, they'll say, Mama, she hung in the... I can, I can tell you the amount of stories I heard at funerals where young men that I never met before still the smell of smoke on their breath at the funerals. I've done many years ago. I could be at those funerals and I see the family members that I've never met before and I could smell the smoke on the breath of a strapping young man who said, you know, Mama, Mama told me that when this day comes, this is what I need to do and I'm going to do it now. I want to make my decision to give my life to the Lord. You got to understand that God works in muddy waters. Church members dragging your name through mud, God can transform their lives. God is saying, love them in the mud of their lives. Love them when things are not clear. Because if you give me time, what is clear as mud to you will be as clear in your eyes as they are in the eyes of God. So hang on in the muddy times. Hang on when it seems like there's a better way, but God says this is the only way. Hang on when you prefer a better river or a better prerogative you want to give God suggestions on how to change your life. So God said, no, 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 no. You got to go in the mud because there's more that you have to deal with than just your external conditions. I can tell you today, I've been through mud. I've been through mud. I'm stronger now than I've been before. I've been through mud at this church. There were days, I remember one day driving up to this church during camp meeting. And I stood down front, it was a Wednesday because camp meeting was beginning on Thursday. And we had a lot of people for prayer meeting that night because they all came with their trailers and everything and everybody was there. And I stood in the front and I said to them, you ever drive up to church and feel like just driving by and never stopping? That's how I feel today. I need you to pray for me. And those strangers, those guests, those visitors came to camp meeting and they surrounded me with prayer through a difficult time in my life. There were days that I was driving down to Marion, going through trials, and I'd pull off the side of the road just before my exit just to talk to God. And I'm standing here today because I know what it's like. We know what it's like to go through mud. But God doesn't save you from the mud. 
God saves you through the mud. So if it's not clear right now, hang on in the mud because God is not done yet. Anybody today want to keep hanging on? Would you stand with me? Would you stand with me? It, don't make, it does not make sense right now. But stay with God. And one day you'll be able to go back and say to somebody like Naaman probably did. He said, look at me now. Remember what I used to look like? Let me show you where the change happened. See that muddy water right there? I met God in muddy waters. It didn't make sense to me, but right now it is all clear. I can see clearly now the mud is gone. Father in heaven, thank you for muddy times. Sometimes we have to lay the world down and think about where we are in our walk with you. Sometimes we have to reassess our lives. And we know that in this congregation, even those watching the sermon, not everything is right. Not everything is the way we'd like it to be. Whatever the matter may be, there's some mud in our lives somewhere. And you're saying to us, don't try to avoid the mud. I'm going to save you through the mud. If it's a marriage that's going through mud, Father, tell that couple to go through the mud together, on their knees together, praying together, hugging each other through tears together, understanding that they're both saints under construction together. Don't give up because God is going to give you a beautiful wife and God is going to give you a strong husband. Hang on together. Get muddy together so God can cleanse you together. Then there are children that parents are praying for today. They're wondering, what do I need to do to get this young person sensible? God is saying, don't worry about it. I got a pile of mud that I'm going to put them through. And if they're willing, they'll come out on the other side, transformed and renewed. So precious Jesus, help us not to cry for the mud to be taken away, but help us to pray for hearts of humility hearts willing to bow low before we can stand tall. Thank you, Lord, for all the mud that we've experienced and for the mud that is yet to come. May we be faithful to the end. And Father, may all the glory go only to you for the transformations in our lives. In Jesus' name we pray. And God's people said, Amen.